The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm pleased to have with me today Damian Ma and William Adams. Damien is a fellow at the Paulson Institute, and William is the senior international economist for the PNC Financial Group. They have just completed and published a book entitled In Line Beyond a Billion People, How Scarcity Will Define China's Ascent in the Next Decade. So let me start off by asking them a question, which is, why now and what's your message? Steve, thanks so much for having us. Uh, the reason why we wanted to write this book and why we needed, we thought this message needed to get out was uh, in the West, in particular in the United States, the conversation about China is either about China's rise and what will the world look like in a Chinese century, uh, or it's about China's imminent collapse and the house of cards that is the Chinese economy. And both of these the problem with uh, both of these two theses about China is that they're really they're only looking at the economy and they're only really thinking about growth. How rapid will growth be? When will China overtake the rest of the world? And we don't think that's really where the story is in China. China is has been and continues to be a very successful economy in terms of growth, but um, China's growth and its success paradoxically constrains China, and those constraints are becoming more and more apparent, and that's the, the, some of the issues that we're trying to explore. David, anything to add on this? Well, the, and that's also behind the idea, the conception of scarcity, and that's, that's, how, that's how we came up with the framing, which, which we divide into economic scarcity, polit- uh, social scarcity, and political scarcity, which are really several ways of looking at the constraints and challenges for China. On the economic side, we're, we're basically talking about the inputs to the Chinese uh, Chinese growth are becoming more constrained and, and scarce, things like labor getting more expensive, energy intensive, and resources. On the social side, we're really talking about the distribution of public goods, things like housing, uh, uh, social welfare, and so on. Again, that's in short, short supply. And political scarcity may confuse some people, but basically what we really mean is institutional scarcity and a governance challenge for China where they have a political system that's increasingly coming up against a 21st century mode of governance that they may not be adequately prepared for. In the conclusion of the book, you come up, I mean, you do not duck the critical question, which is what's going to happen. And you not only kind of give predictions as what's going to happen, you actually attribute percentages to them. And a quite optimistic conclusion where you have 70%, you're going to go through major reform, 25% we're going to see kind of what we've seen status quo, which is going to create significant problem. And the 5% I would call kind of almost backsliding. That's going to be a state control, which is going to inhibit economic growth to the point that you're going to have significant social instability. How did you cut, how did you quantify that? Well, I, uh, we have the crystal balls and they helped. (laughs) Uh, I, I mean, the, our, our general sense is that we, we were trying to we we spend most of the book laying out these incredibly complex and difficult problems, both economic and political and social, 
And by the end of it, you just get to thinking, how can they ever possibly manage any of these things? And then um, we kind of looked back a little bit at what China accomplished. And in the 1990s, they managed to get the military out of the economy. The military was incredibly influential in the, the market economy. They, they ended that. They um, privatized SOEs in the 1990s. They met, and they shifted the labor force into the private sector, which seemed like an intractable political and, and institutional problem. And they just have consistently overperformed, in particular, the sort of pessimistic American expectations of how you can manage uh, this kind of mixed, mixed system, mixed socialist, capitalist economy and, and society. So we've in a sense, I think by expecting, you know, transformative change over the next 10 years, we're really just saying they're probably going to do what they've been doing for the last 10 years, which is taking a, a society with really intractable problems and, um, and facing them head on. You think they have, over the last 10 years, had transformative change? Uh, I think there have been some transformative changes over the last 10 years. I think, it, like, think we're in 2013 right now. In 2003, uh, it was still not uncommon for migrant workers in urban China to just sort of be picked up and arrested for not being in a city without permission and sent back home being roughed up along the way. Uh, migrant workers in urban China today, they not only are allowed to live there, they have access to health care, they have access increasingly, although certainly not of the same quality, to education for their children. And there's, there's a framework in place, you know, in China the framework always comes before the implementation, but there's a framework in place for uh, having uh, rural Chinese urbanize and come in and, and have a life in the cities. So, I mean, certainly there aren't presidential elections in China, but I think if you look at what were some of the most pressing challenges a generate or not a generation a decade ago, they've they've addressed they've. I think uh, two thousand and three version of this conversation would be surprised by what what has been accomplished in twenty thirteen. One of the things the books make the book makes clear is that the overinvestment, the investment in infrastructure, the hard asset investment has led to environmental degradation, which is just evident. I got back from Beijing on, uh, on Tuesday night, so uh, you know, two days ago. <laughs> and um, you know, the air, and here it is, beginning of October when the air is generally clear, it is just dark. The PMI was 320. How can you fix that consistent with maintaining economic growth? I think it's clear already that they're deliberately trying to slow it down. Uh, I, I think the era of double-digit growth is, is in all likelihood over for China, and I think they are a lot more serious focused on balancing their, their, their resource intensity model with a more sort of resource con you know, conservation. How? How? Yeah, how they can do it. Well, there are several ways they can do it. One is they're going to have to really change uh, resource pricing, which now is, 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 is fairly undervalued and manipulated by the government. Uh, it's it's not very market based, so that's one way to do it. And two is they so put in place market mechanisms for gasoline prices, for coal prices, for oil prices, for electricity prices. Is that right? And and, and that and, will restrict. That won't subsidize those areas, so you'll have less use. Right. So energy pricing, you can think of it same as same as currency pricing, right? I mean. Those two prices were basically manipulated to some extent, or intervened uh, very heavily by by the Chinese government. So they're going to have to 
uh, I think allow some prices to rise. Obviously, they got to consider inflationary impact, but in general, they're going to have to rely more on the market to sort of allocate these resources more efficiently. And they're, they're, they're spending something, I believe, $150, $200 billion a year over the next five years on environmental pollution. So the scale is, is pretty significant. And I think uh, the other thing they can really do in, uh, beyond just purely spending money is they got to change the local political incentives to allow local politicians to really incorporate environmental sustainability into, into how, they're, how they're promoted. Once again, I ask how. Uh, it's going to have to be dictated strictly down from the top, and there's going to be a lot of push and pull, and it's not going to be easy. But I think increasingly you're hearing you know, the new Premier League, which I'm talking about it, is allowing, uh, is, is really changing the local incentives in a way that would serve more environmental conscious goals rather than just purely pro-growth uh, goals. Mm-hmm. The, in, uh, on the same topic, the um, uh, China's new president, I, I don't remember if this was last month or two months ago, but there was, uh, he was quoted in the Chinese government mouthpiece saying that an exclusive focus on growth uh, as a way for evaluating social progress is, is an error. Basically saying there are these report cards that Chinese government officials get at the end of each year about how well they've done, and it's basically uh, how fast has your economy grown and how, men, how much social um, conflict and, and social demonstrations have you had, the fewer the better. And it, he's, that's basically the president lobbying to add more, more bullets to the, this list and make those other things more important. Uh, in China, the president doesn't have unilateral say over how that report card's written, but just saying something and setting expectations for what the president wants probably does influence. What surprised you most as you wrote this book? I think we were surprised by, uh, we had a couple of different issues that we wanted to talk about. We wanted to talk about resources and the changing political system and changing society and ways that we thought were a little bit overlooked in the United States, in the West in general, in the U.S. in particular. And we sort of fixed on scarcity as the, uh, the way to look at all of them. And we were surprised by how it does tie through all of these different issues. Um, there's a China has managed to keep its uh, command political structure at the same time that it's uh, had developed a market economy. But the market economy has changed the society that that political structure was set up to control and to manage. And so th- this mismatch between uh, the political system and the society, which we try to talk about in terms of scarcity, is in some ways similar to the mismatch in, in other parts of these old institutions that no longer make sense for a changing environment. I think uh, the other insight that we both found sort of surprising when we, when, when we kept on writing and we kept on discussing about how to write some of these uh, you know, uh, themes and chapters, we kept on coming back to a lot of the institutional and social challenges is really sort of a reflection of China being a victim of its own economic success that economic growth and development has really changed a lot of things and some uh, and a lot of this has uh, has been reflected in sort of uh, you know institutional deficits governance deficits and 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 there there really is a feedback loop between economic development growth and and how China's approaches its, its social and political development and i think that's something that not too many books really focus on is the intersection between all, all three, there's a tendency to really focus on whether China will just grow or not grow, or whether China will reform politically or not not reform politically. But I think you really got to un- understand holistically how 35 years of economic change has led to all these 
deficiencies in, in the governance side. Talk about energy scarcity in one of your, your chapters, and I think it's your, one of your earlier chapters in terms of resource scarcity. Is shale gas an answer here? Can that be something which actually leads China to both reduce its environmental um, degradation and reduce its energy imports? Well, I've done some work on this and writing on this. Well, uh, I think uh, in the next five to ten years, not, uh, I think it's fairly unlikely. I think China aspires to have the shale revolution that we've had in, in, in the United States. And in fact, when you talk to Chinese investors and oil companies, that they all want to become gas companies. It's a smart strategy, but I think China has, again, unique constraints that we do not have here in the United States, water being cheap among them. And also, if you, it has been less talked about, but the fact that uh, most of the drilling and exploration right now is happening in Sichuan, which is also pretty earthquake prone, and there's an issue there in terms of seismic activity. So I think China actually uh, is still in the very nascent stages, and uh, I think there's been a lot of recent uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, turnaround in terms of the optimism in the Chinese shale gas sector. Again, you guys finish the book. What's a rather pessimistic book, you finish it optimistically with your 70%, you know, where you, you, you talk about these overwhelming problems and then but yet you think 70% the Chinese government, if history tells us anything, is pretty good at understanding what these problems are, and they're probably going to reform. What if they don't? What do you see happening? Well, if the bad thing happens, that's bad, right? Uh, I think the, the, the constraints that we lay out on both on the Chinese political system, on Chinese society, and on uh, the Chinese economy, it's easy to see how... Uh, a refusal to address these problems head-on could either um, allow a Chinese society that is uh, where it's much more possible for the average citizens to communicate with each other and share their common frustrations and dissatisfactions. Uh, it's, it's easier to see how the government's not able to control that dissatisfaction uh, in the way that it has in the past. It's also easy to see how a lot of the... Um, overhang of economic issues, uh, in particular the, the environmental cost of a very resource-intensive growth model, turn into uh, either very severe health impacts on Chinese, on Chinese people affected by uh, water quality and land quality, air quality, or uh, feedback into the political system where we've already seen a couple of examples where Chinese demonstrators stop development, stop the construction of a new chemical plant because uh, of their perception that uh, of its likely impact on the environment. Well, we have run out of time, but let me thank Damien Ma and William Adams for joining us today. They are the authors of In Line Behind a Billion People. Thank you. <laughs>